your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, a new internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, Let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Researchers recently announced the many benefits of candid discussions between terminally ill cancer patients and their oncologist about end-of-life treatment options. Contrary to earlier studies, which indicated doctors and patients frequently avoided these discussions in fear it would do more psychological harm than good, a recent study found that patients who were involved in the decision-making process experienced a better quality of life in their waning days than those who did not. In addition, their caregiver, usually a spouse or adult child, was less likely to experience major depression in the months after the patient's death if aggressive medical interventions were avoided. Out of 332 terminally ill cancer patients, 123 reported having had such conversations with their doctors. On average, the patients were followed for the final four and a half months of life. The researchers then assessed the emotional health of the caregiver an average of six and a half months later. Results revealed that patients who had talks about the type of care they wanted and didn't want received fewer aggressive medical interventions, such as being placed on a ventilator to breathe, being resuscitated, or being sent to an intensive care unit. Researchers explained that when a doctor or patient initiates a conversation about treatments, it gives both people a chance to define collaborative goals and expectations for medical care as the patient approaches death. Patients in the study who took this approach were more likely to accept their cancer was truly terminal and express desire for comfort care near death over life-extending treatment. Researchers also said that the way a patient died influenced the way their loved ones coped with their loss. People whose loved one died in an intensive care unit were three times more likely to have major depression than those whose loved one did not die in an ICU. In other news, researchers announced that a long-awaited study of an X-ray alternative to the dreaded colonoscopy confirms its effectiveness at spotting most cancers. The study focused on CT colonography, also known as virtual colonoscopy. It's a super X-ray of the colon that is quicker, cheaper, and easier on the patient than traditional colonoscopies. Medicare is already considering paying for this cheaper, less intrusive option that could persuade more people to get screened for colon cancer. And some experts believe that the new method may boost the 50% screening rate for a cancer that is the country's second biggest killer. Findings revealed that the virtual colonoscopy identified 9 out of 10 people who had cancer 
cancers and large growths seen by regular colonoscopies. The procedure, however, still had its flaws. On several occasions, radiologists misread x-rays, leading them to spot polyps that weren't there and schedule unnecessary follow-up testing. Researchers believe that the x-ray test's real value may be in showing who really needs a regular colonoscopy, as virtual colonoscopies are better at ruling cancer out than it was at detecting it. Colorectal cancer will claim about 50,000 lives this year. The gold standard in detecting colorectal cancer remains a colonoscopy, which involves a long, thin tube equipped with a small video camera that is sent through the large intestine to view the lining. Any growth found can be removed during the procedure. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this was today's Cancer in the News. Today, there are over 12 million cancer survivors living in the United States, which means more and more people are beating cancer than ever before. While the prognosis of surviving cancer certainly varies from person to person, uh, sometimes even doctors can't explain how some patients completely beat the odds and make what seems like a miraculous recovery. We have two wonderful guests on our show today to discuss amazing stories of cancer survival. First, we have Sean Swarner, a cancer survivor and really a medical marvel. Uh, he was diagnosed with both both uh, Hodgkin's disease and uh, Askin's sarcoma as a teenager. And upon each diagnosis, Sean was told he would only have weeks to live. But thankfully, his doctor's prognosis really never came true. And, and he went on actually to be the first cancer survivor to climb all seven of the world's summits. Uh, Sean is here with us today to share his incredible story and talk about the organization he established called Cancer Climber Association. It's a nonprofit dedicated to, dedicated to motivating those with cancer by encouraging patients to inspire each other. Thanks for being here, Sean. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Dr. Peter Eisenberg, founder of the Association of Northern California Oncologists. Peter has been in private practice for more than 30 years, 30 years, Peter, as a member of uh, California Cancer Care and 11 physician practice in Marin and San Mateo counties. He is heavily involved in clinical cancer research uh, and administers numerous clinical trials for California Cancer Care. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much, Kim. You look too young for having been doing this for 30 years, Peter. I don't feel it sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to have both of you with us here today, and I know our audience is eager to hear from you, so uh, let's jump right in. Sean, uh, let's start with your story. Uh, You're the only person to have been recorded as having had uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and Askin's sarcoma. Let's go back to you were diagnosed as a teenager. Let's go back to when you were diagnosed with these cancers and really what it was like hearing that prognosis from your doctor? Yeah, well, uh, I was actually in the eighth grade, so I was, I was 13 years old, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny how they diagnosed it and, and how they actually found it. Um, I was going up for layup in basketball, and my knee snapped, and mm. that injury triggered every joint in my body to, to pretty much go haywire. And then the doctors threw me in the hospital. They thought I had pneumonia, and because I grew up in such a small town, like population 5,000, mm-hmm. they... Uh, Moved me to Columbus, Ohio, where they did more tests. You know, the the, the whole slew of uh, bone marrow, spinal taps, and, and every and everything else. All, all those horror stories that everyone hears about. Um, and eventually diagnosed me with uh, advanced fourth stage Hodgkin's lymphoma as a, as a 13 year old. And uh, you know, like you said, it was it was quite devastating. And so, when they told you that you had advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. What did, what did they tell you? That you were going to get treatment? That you were going to have surgery? Did, did they talk about a prognosis at that point? Well, I, I think because I was still young, I didn't actually fully comprehend what was going on. My parents told me that I was sick and that I had Hodgkin's, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this was this was back in the day before the internet, um, and and people actually used the uh, the card catalogs in the libraries. Mm-hmm. So I, I went down to the uh, hospital library and, and did a lot of research and found that Hodgkin's lymphoma was a type of cancer. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, like I said, I was I was so young though. I don't think I fully comprehend. Uh, I, I don't think I fully understood exactly what was going on and what my body was actually uh, going through at the time. Now, so so then go on and tell us about that second diagnosis of Askin sarcoma. How did that how did that uh, come along? Well, um, I think I, I, I'd have the world's worst good luck. You know, I have <laughs> all, all these rotten things that happen to me, but uh, it's always the uh, the best possible outcome um, because I was placed remission from the Hodgkins and going in for a checkup uh, about a year later for the Hodgkins. Um, you know, and they they found a, a golf ball sized tumor on my right lung. And in the process of about one day, they found a tumor, they did a needle biopsy, they took out a lymph node, they put in a Hickman catheter, they cracked open my ribs, took out the tumor, put in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy. Ah, what a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but like I said, I have the world's worst good luck because if I wouldn't have had the Hodgkins, maybe they wouldn't have found the Askins. Yeah. Because I was just going in for a, a checkup. And that's when they, uh, they gave me a prognosis of 14 days. Of 14 days. As, as a 16-year-old, the, uh, the doctors told my family that uh, I pretty much had four, four two weeks to live. Wow. Un- unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, Peter, I know that yeah, as an oncologist, you see patients with all kinds of different cancers at many, many different stages of disease. I'm sure some who are in, in late-stage disease, metastatic disease. Talk to us a little bit, Peter, about how you talk to your patients, how you deliver a, a tough prognosis, and how you kind of walk through that with a patient. Sure. Um, first, it's important to find out where the patient is. I mean, frankly, when you're talking to anybody, it's best to start off where someone is. So um, uh, when meeting a new patient, I ask them how they understand their illness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually surprising to see how well folks understand uh, what they've been told. Now, they may not understand the implications, like what's going to happen to them, which is really important to them, yeah. uh, but, they, but they get the basic facts right. Uh, secondly, I ask, um, what do you, how much do you want to know about your illness? Uh, that's important because it's uh, at least rude to tell people bad news that they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, some people, uh, most people in our community, which is a um, kind of upscale community in Marin County, California, uh, where folks are relatively well-educated, mm-hmm. um, want to know what they're up against. Um, but some folks really don't, and, and we have a question in our health history that says um, some patients want to know as much as they can about their illness and make all of their own medical decisions. Other patients would rather know less and leave it up to the doctor. How do you feel? So starting with the answer to that question, um, I can kind of frame uh, what I have to tell folks uh, based on what they already know mm-hmm. and how much, quote, truth, unquote, they want. But even at the beginning and end of that, the patient is the center of that conversation. Absolutely. I mean, the patient's the center of everything we do here. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that really makes your practice unique, Peter, is that, that commitment to patient-centric care. Well, yeah. And, and, I mean, the best compliment I get is you guys, and it's a team sport, oncology. Uh, and so I include everybody from the front desk uh, to the, to the uh, most accomplished doc. Mm-hmm. You guys are really looking out for me, mm-hmm. and um, that, that kind of says it all. 
So, Peter, so, so we, we're going to take a break in just a couple minutes. But so, okay, I let's say that based on the criteria that you said, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm educated. I, I want to know everything. Um, I have uh, metastatic breast cancer, um, and I want to know it all. Lay it on me, Peter. What do you, what do you say to the patient? Well, okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's say that this uh, patient, let's not talk about you, but let's say that yes. this uh, uh, pretend patient has uh, metastatic disease that involves her bones, which is probably uh, the most common uh, site in breast cancer. Uh, I would say something like um, your disease has spread to the bones, that is defined as stage four disease, and then I would make a little picture and show how staging from one through four works. And as such, this is probably not a curable illness. And let me tell you, Kim, I hedge my bets because um, Sean and others have proven that we just don't know everything. Um, but having said that, I think it's also important to give people some idea of what they're up against. And so if somebody really wants to know their prognosis, I'll give them my best shot. And I never pick a number, but what I would say in the case of somebody with advanced breast cancer, we're not talking days, weeks, or even months. We're talking years. We may be talking many years. We may not be talking decades. And that gives folks some kind of an indication of what they're up against and what kind of plans they should make. And how they can really start to think about their life. Okay, excellent. We're, uh, we're talking here uh, today with, uh, with uh, Sean Swarner, who is a cancer survivor who's climbed all seven of the world's summits, and uh, Dr. Peter Eisenberg, uh, oncologist in Northern California. Um, we're going to take just a quick break, folks, and we'll be right back to continue this, uh, this incredible conversation. Thanks. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, Time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. 
blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking to Sean Swarner, a cancer survivor who beat the odds, and Dr. P- Peter Eisenberg, an oncologist in Northern California at California Cancer Care. Peter, I just want to pick up for a moment uh, where we left right before the break, um, really talking a-, a little bit more about how you deliver tough news to a patient, patient with metastatic disease, um, and what are some of the factors that you that you consider when doing that. So you talk about the diagnosis, you talk about what it means that the, that the cancer has spread or has metastasized, um, has maybe moved into the bone or into some other organs, and then, and then you go ahead and lay out the treatment plan and talk about what some of the treatment options are? Right. Well, before we do that, we talk about the goals. Okay. So um, let's say again in this uh, uh, pretend lady with metastatic breast cancer to bone, I would say uh, typically our goals in cancer care are to either cure a person, make them live longer, or make them feel better focus on quality of life Mm -hmm. if we can't do one of the first two. Mm -hmm. And with what you have, ma'am, metastatic breast cancer, it's not likely we'll make it all go away. But it is very likely that treatment will affect prolongation of life and either the um, treatment and disappearance of symptoms or the prevention of symptoms. So our goals would be to prolong life and to decrease symptoms. Okay. And then we would talk about, okay, so what are the treatment um, uh, possibilities? What are the treatment options? And they range in metastatic breast cancer yeah. from uh, hormonal therapy to chemotherapy to different kinds of immunotherapy to medicines that make women's bones stronger, and then the host of the supportive care medicines for supporting white count and red count and fighting nausea and fatigue and all the rest of the things mm-hmm. that, that folks are up against. And so as part of how you make that decision also, again, back to, to being centered on the patient. So tell me what your life is like. Tell me what's important to you, and that will help us guide what the treatment decisions are. Absolutely. And, and, and what I explained to people, see, the old way used to be somebody would walk in the door and they'd have metastatic breast cancer, and I'd be the doc and say, you have breast cancer. Let's start you on treatment X. Right. And that assumes that I understand what's important to the patient, mm-hmm. which cannot be assumed. Yeah. And it's easier for me to teach a patient some medicine than it is for me in an hour-long consultation to learn the ins and outs and quirks and what folks feel is important about them. Yeah. So if, and actually what's, what's fascinating is that when faced with these uh, options, patients immediately gravitate to what fits for them. 
Yeah. And when they do that, I, I've understood that I've done my job well. If they say, gee, Doc, I don't know, what would you do? Or I'm having a hard time making my decision. I start at the beginning again <laughs> and, and kind of go through it because I really haven't done a good enough job. So they, they have to really get that. You have to feel like you're totally in sync for that decision to be made. Exactly. Exactly. So, so Sean, let's go back to your story. Um, we, we certainly we let folks know that you were diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and then shortly thereafter with Askin's sarcoma. This is all when you were a teenager, um, pretty much a roller coaster, pretty poor prognosis. Um, uh, but obviously, you're here with us today. Tell us what led you from that point of that unbelievable experience to a point where you said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start climbing mountains. I'm gonna, I'm gonna climb the seven summits. I'm gonna create this organization called the Cancer Climber Association." What, what, what sparked in you? What led to that? What led to that decision for you, Sean? Well, it actually starts in college. I, uh, you know, accepted into a, uh, a wonderful school in Pennsylvania called Westminster College, and I started off molecular biology thinking that I was going to play God and cure cancer by splicing genes and, <laughs> and taking care of everything that way until I took immunology and decided that uh, you know, it just wasn't up my alley. So I switched to psychology and moved to um, Jacksonville, Florida after, my getting, after getting my bachelor's and was accepted into a doctoral program and, and had the initial plans of, of being a psycho-oncologist. Mm. Um, a psychologist, cancer patients, for those who don't understand the term. But I realized that I had a lot to offer because of what I'd been through, and, and I could very much empathize with the patients and give a lot back and, and really help not only the patients but the families as well. Yeah. And it was also the first time in my life, um, you know, because when I went to, uh, to college, it was I, was I was myself again. It, uh, no, one, no one in college had an idea that I had cancer. And, yeah. It was it was a hundred basically a hundred thousand dollar party for me because I was starting all over again. <laughs> and then, uh, like I said, went to grad school and hit the books and and started studying. And it was the first time that I was away from that mm-hmm. um, and away from home and you know a thousand miles away from anybody I knew. And it was the first time I did some reflection on my life. Mm-hmm. And I looked into myself and decided that having cancer didn't necessarily define who I was, but it helped me become the person that I am today. Mm-hmm. You know, it definitely had a part. In, in my life, and it definitely helped shape my life and, and make me who I am. And that's when I realized that because of everything I went through, it would just be too emotionally attaching to deal with cancer patients on, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to emotionally get attached to, and I wouldn't be able to emotionally handle losing any patients. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, it would just be too personally attaching for me to, to deal with um, getting involved with, with the parents and, and the families and the, the, the cancer patients and the people who are battling for their lives. Because kind of close, really and, close to home. Yeah. You know, I'd look in, in little Johnny's eyes and see myself yeah. too much. Yeah. yeah. And I, I decided that um, life really is, it's, it's just too precious and too short. And I wanted to make a, a difference in the lives of people touched by cancer around the world. And I wanted to give something back that I never had when I was going through treatments, and that's a wonderful four-letter word. I know there's not too many good four-letter words out there, but this one's hope. Yeah. You know, I, I did a lot of reflection, like I said, and, and I came up with this, this notion of uh, a, a saying and a phrase that I have, that the human body can live for about 30 days without water. Um, the human condition can sustain itself for roughly three days without food, but no human alive can survive for more than 30 seconds without hope, because without hope we truly have nothing. Yeah, it's so it's so true, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, not literally speaking, obviously, because you know we all we all need the uh, the food and the house, the shelter, and, and the everything else, and clothing. Right. 
But that was something but that really kept you going. It, it was. You know, hope kept me going. And I wanted to literally scream from the rooftops of the world that there is hope. So you, you made some serious plans to start this, uh, this endeavor. What was, your, what was your first climb, Sean? Well, the first big climb, believe it or not, was Mount Everest. That was the first? That was the very first big climb. I was, in, I was living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, like I said, going for my, uh, my master's doctorate. And it's uh, not exactly a, uh, a prime place to, to yes. train for mountaineering. <laughs> to train for mountaineering, right, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the bridges is the highest spot in Jacksonville. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's either that or the, uh, the 15-foot sand dunes, right? Exactly. <laughs> But I, I moved out to uh, Estes Park, Colorado, and uh, lived lived literally out of the back of my car and, and camped for a couple months before I found a wonderful family to take me in and, and live in their basement apartment and started training out here and, and started a journal and eventually wrote a book called Keep Climbing and eight months later became the first cancer survivor to some of them and literally went from uh, the dregs of my, of, of my life to uh, the highest point in the world. In the world. So, Peter, um, I, you know, obviously Sean's story is amazing. Um, and, you know, at the wellness community, we, we hear, we very much encourage people to make plans for the future, that it's so important psychologically, emotionally, to have something to look forward to and to make, uh, and to make plans. And also just hearing Sean talk about how, how cancer really did become a defining moment for him. And, and we oftentimes say it becomes a meaning-making experience, and, and it gives you, it does make you, Pause a little bit in your life and reflect, and and, and uh, look, you know, look for some uh, look for some meaning in your life, and look for some new ways to live. You must see that every day in your practice, Peter. Do you talk with patients about making plans, about things to look forward to? Sure. Um, the fact of the matter is that even when our medicines fail um, to help folks uh, live longer, uh, we uh, talk about uh, making plans in terms of getting together with hospice. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Sean is absolutely correct. Uh, folks need to have some idea in which direction they're pointed and have something to hope for. Um, and what I talk about is in that very tough discussion about uh, wh- when the treatment is no longer working and we've pretty much run out of options, mm-hmm. uh, of shifting our hopes to of shifting our hopes from shrinking the tuber, tumor and maybe living longer to living every day just as well as we possibly can. So instead of and living I, longer, it's about living, it's about living better. Yeah, and frankly, people like you, uh, Kim, who have um, kind of uh, spread the word that yeah. quality, of, quality of care may be as important as quantity of care. Uh, when I use the term quality of care, folks understand what I'm talking about. And um, it's actually a terrific shortcut for me um, because folks understand what we're talking about. What and and um, the other point that I'd like to make is yeah. that uh, patients need to know that their docs and the doc staff will be with them for the duration. So it's very important for us to say um, we're not going to abandon you even if you um, participate in the care that hospice has to, to offer. We're still your docs. We, were, we are committed to making uh, you feel just as good as you possibly can, and we'll, uh, you know, treat each uh, problem as they arise. So even if it is really figuring out 
making that transition to hospice, potentially talking about how how to make the decision to end treatment, making the transition to hospice, starting to talk about those end-of-life issues. Your team helps them get to that moment as well. Absolutely, and it just absolutely makes me crazy when I hear uh, people talk about uh, the doctor saying there's nothing left we can do because there's always something that we can do. Now, frankly, I don't, I don't mean to bring you all down because uh, Sean's story is a terrific one. Right, and, right. And, uh, you know, he luckily uh, was not in that place either time. Uh, but, of course, the realities are that, that lots of our folks... Uh, uh, end up in that spot. Right. And you know what, Peter, I think that, look, at the wellness community, we certainly know there are, we all know somebody who, who is battling cancer right now. We all know somebody who's beat cancer. We all know somebody who's died from cancer. So, I, I, you know, and, and I think it's important, you know, from our standpoint, it's important to, to, to share the whole range of that experience. Um, we're going to go to a, a quick break, and we are going to be right back with Sean Swarner and Dr. Peter Eisenberg. Thank you. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. 
cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, and we have some great guests with us today. Uh, Sean Swarner, who was the uh, only cancer survivor to have climbed all seven summits uh, in the world. He uh, had both Hodgkin's lymphoma and Askin's sarcoma as a teenager uh, and has gone on to climb all seven of those summits. And we have Dr. Peter uh, Eisenberg, who is um, a oncologist in California with California Cancer Care. Uh, we're talking about Sean's amazing story uh, of, of survival and really of beating the odds, but really also talking about what, what can cancer mean for the average person. I mean, Sean said, hey, I'm going to go climb all seven summits. I know for some of our patients at the wellness community, the goal is I'm going to get out of bed tomorrow and walk around the dining room table, um, and that's going to be the goal. And I think it's important for, for us, again, to, to talk today about the, that, that range, uh, that range of options. We certainly all are getting some wonderful hope and inspiration from Sean's uh, story. But, again, we also want to talk to the average person about what they can do to find uh, hope, um, in, you know, in the face of a cancer diagnosis. Um, Sean, uh, we were talking about, uh, again, w- what uh, this experience, the, the, this summiting experience, uh, establishing the Cancer Climber Association has meant to you. And I, and I know we've been talking about hope, and I know that uh, there's something you do when you get to the top of each of these summits. That, 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 that is meant to inspire hope. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, aside from cry like a little baby, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All these emotions are wrapped up and everything that I've been through um, really gets me going. And, and when I get to the summit, I actually have a flag that has names of people touched by cancer. So when I did climb on Everest, obviously I wasn't alone in, in the highest mountain on each continent since then. I've, I've never been alone on all those, the, the peaks. We have a flag that has names of people touched by cancer, and it says dedicated to all those affected by cancer in this small world. Uh, keep climbing. And you mentioned something earlier about, you know, how um, somebody's goal might be to walk on the dining room table. Uh, believe it or not, I, I summited Everest and, and all these other mountains with one functioning lung, and my goal at one time was to hop in my wheelchair and wheel myself around the nursing station. So everybody starts somewhere, and I believe that, you know, everybody has their own quote-unquote Everest to climb, be it walking around the, the dining room table or getting out of bed and, 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 you know, making it to the bathroom. Yeah. Is that part of the, the, the message of, of your organization, Cancer Climber Association? Sean, can you tell us about that? Well, the Cancer Climber Association was... Uh, the name actually comes from two different things. Obviously, um, you know, the, the Cancer Climber himself going up and down the mountains. But every person who's touched by cancer literally is is attempting to climb out of their current state and back into a, a, a wonderful state because, you know, like a lot of people, um, I believe that uh, cancer is the worst thing that's ever happened to me, I'll be honest with you, but I can retort that by saying that cancer is also the best thing that's ever happened to me. Hmm. You know, and, and if people look at it that way, um, we can help each other touched by cancer inspire one another. And what we do is we give grants to cancer survivors who have a goal, mm-hmm. and we help them accomplish that goal, be it, um, like you said, you know, walking around the dining room table. You know, we can help them with that if, if their goal is to, say, on a larger scale, bike from L.A. to New York. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll help them organize that. The only caveat we ask of them is that they actually visit local hospitals mm-hmm. and visit with the cancer patients and directly have that one-on-one contact from a survivor to a patient to give them some hope and inspiration. Yeah. And we're also working on... Uh, well, initially, our idea was to have a number of, quote-unquote, cancer climber camps around the country where, where kids and, and children touched by cancer can come and, and be normal for a weekend, you know, get out yeah. there and, and enjoy nature and, and just get out of, of the hospital setting for a while. Yeah. 
And we realized that it would be impossible for us to reach all those kids who are touched by cancer, and the ones that we're actually trying to reach literally can't, you know, they can't get on a plane and get there. Yeah, yeah. So we're actually trying to raise enough funds now to develop a semi-camp or a a semi-truck that is a mobile camp that will be inside the back of a trailer, a semi-trailer, and it will pull up to 12 to 24 different cities around the country Mm. into a hospital parking lot and unfold to 6,700 square feet where underneath this dome will be a high ropes course, a climbing wall, a movie theater, a classroom, a game room, and, and everything else you can think of. Wow. It's a great goal. It's great to let people know uh, about that project. Wow, really phenomenal. You know, um, Peter, I think that if you walk down the street and asked a lot of people on the street, you know, what, what's, the, what's, what's one of the worst things you think could happen to you as a human being? I think a lot of people would say, I think getting cancer would be one of the worst things that could happen to me. And then we hear somebody like Sean say, you know, cancer was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that when you said that, Sean. I, I, the fact of the matter is that um, there are having a serious illness or, or, or actually um, any, you know, kind of terrible thing that happens to you, the, the, uh, a death in the family or, or the loss of a job or, you know, uh, uh, a hurricane. I mean, all these kinds of things help us focus uh, or refocus, perhaps, on what's important to us and our family and ourselves. And um, uh, you can say that, but I can't as a as a as a care provider, as a doctor. Um, and and it's it's absolutely gratifying for me to see uh, a patient um, use their bad luck because in most cases, cancer is just a question of bad luck, yeah. uh, as an opportunity to learn something about themselves, to move forward, to, to do what they think is really important. Um, it's, it's really, it's quite liberating. Yeah, yeah. And do you have other patients, Peter, who are saying, who are saying that to you, that this is liberating to me, that this made me refocus, it made me reprioritize, look at my life in a whole different way? Sure, sure. But more than them saying it, uh, it's how they behave mm-hmm. and, and, and how they kind of, you know, shift their values and focus on, on family, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like they say, nobody ever on their dying day, on their dying bed said, um, gee, I wish I had worked more. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I think it helps reprioritize your life, like you're saying. Exactly, exactly. And really think about things that are important to you. And as you said, Sean, really inspired you, and I think, I mean, both of you have made a commitment to really touch so many people and make it, really try to make a difference in the lives of people, uh, in the lives of people around you. And, I mean, it was your experience, Sean, that really motivated that, right? Oh, yeah, without a doubt, like I said earlier, it's... Uh... You know, it took me a while to actually reflect on my life and realize that having cancer was a part of myself and was a part of my life and helped me and helped me become who I am now. And I think I'm taking it on as a responsibility of what I think I should be doing with my life now. Yeah. And that's reaching out and giving people that hope and inspiration and letting them know that, you know, truly anything is possible. 
Now, you know, um, at, at, at my organization, the wellness community, we're providing uh, support groups, educational programs, nutrition exercise to folks all over the country of 26 centers um, around the country. Are, are you guys finding it easier to get people connected to those kinds of resources in your community? I mean, I know, Peter, you're even providing some of those programs and services uh, uh, at your practice, but is that one of the things you're both doing is just kind of encouraging people to get connected with other cancer survivors, to get connected with support services in their, in their communities? Absolutely. I mean, we have a social worker who uh, is in our office. She's an employee of our practice. And one of her biggest jobs is to know what's going on in the community, uh, like the wellness community, and hook up patients and families with the resources that are available. Yeah. And Sean, as you're traveling around the country, are you uh, are you finding groups? I mean, I know we, we've you know we've had a chance to spend some time with you, Sean, and I know you've spent time with some other uh, uh, cancer organizations. Are you finding that you're kind of learning about this network of support, and you're able to get people connected to some of these resources? Uh, without a doubt, yeah. And I think um, you know a lot's changed, and, and I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, everyone will agree with me here. A lot's changed since I was first diagnosed in 1988. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then in 1991 again. Oh, so much has changed since then, and people now realize it's not just the treatments, it's not just the doctors, it's not just the nutrition, it's everything combined together. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how many um, support systems and support groups and information systems are actually popping up all over the place, and it's much easier now for people to get together to find that support system and to find all that information to help out with their treatments. Yeah, I mean, I know even like you said, Sean, when you were diagnosed, people weren't really on the Internet, uh, you know, looking for information, getting information. Sometimes it can be a dangerous thing <laughs> today. Sometimes there's too much information. But I know even at the wellness community we're doing, not only do we do support groups face-to-face, but now we're also doing support groups on the Internet. We're doing actual support groups that are run by, you know, trained licensed therapists. These folks meet, you know, once a week in the online group to get connected, and we've got people in groups not only from coast to coast, but we actually have people in groups from other parts of the world connecting with each other online. Uh, and I know we're seeing a lot of social networking and a lot more, lot more connection uh, as well through the online community. Are you seeing some of that as well, Sean, some of those online services? Oh, without a doubt. One thing that um, Cancer Climber Association is going to develop with the, uh, the cities that we visit with the, the semi-truck and the portable camp is we're going to put together something kind of like MySpace and, and Facebook, but it's going to be My Cancer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where we're going to collect a, uh, um, a whole group of kids touched by cancer, and they can reach out there and, you know, they can find someone who has Hodgkin's lymphoma. Maybe somebody in L.A. is, you know, a friend with someone in Miami, Florida. Yeah. You know, they can just reach out there and have that, that support system. And it can also be used for um, not only the patients, but siblings as well. You know, my brother was, was dragged through it because, as we all know, having cancer is not just an individual illness. It brings everybody through it. It really does affect the whole family. I mean, in fact, even in our online support groups, we not only have groups for patients, we have groups for caregivers, we have bereavement groups for people who've lost someone to cancer. We also have um, shown a whole online community for teens with cancer called Group Loop. Um, and we had just an example of what you're talking about, a teen in Illinois who connected with a teen in California. They had the exact same diagnosis. They were really back and forth uh, supporting each other. And, in fact, the teen from Illinois and her mom flew to California to visit with the teen in California. And then a year later, the teen from California and her mom flew 
to Illinois to visit with the, uh, you know, with the with the family there. So it was through the internet that they connected with each other, and really were able to talk about things that you couldn't talk about with anyone else. So we're really having um, a great conversation today about beating the odds with cancer, um, and we are just going to take a short break, and we will be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Well, welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've been hearing uh, Sean's amazing story of survival and his work in establishing the Cancer Climber Association, also hearing uh, from Dr. Peter Eisenberg about how to uh, cope with the cancer diagnosis, how to make treatment decisions, and how to, how important it is really to keep the patient uh, at the center of that conversation, at the center of care. Um, Sean, you've been traveling around the world, around the country, sharing your amazing story. Um, what what kind of reaction do you get from people? What what impact do you think your story has has had on others when you share it? Well, actually, it, it didn't hit me until I was with a uh, a good friend of mine in Mendoza, Argentina, climbing. Um, Hawking Colorado High Sound in South America, and everywhere I go, I always make it a point to visit local hospitals and share mm-hmm. my patient, my, my survivorship story with the patients. And we visited a hospital called the Noti Hospital, mm-hmm. and you know we went in there and visited, and we got back to the hotel room. And my friend, who's who's a photographer for National Geographic, was just looking at me, and I, you know, staring at me. And I kind of looked at him like, "What? <laughs> like, did you see what happened today?" And I said, "No, you know what." And he said that, you know, because he was looking at everything through the eyes of a camera, you know, through his lens. And he said, when we got in there, every single patient and every, every single person in the hospital was down. You know, the attitude of the entire hospital 
was just melancholy. Mm. And when you walked in there and when you left, every single person had a smile on their face and a glimmer of hope in their eye. So it just lifted the whole place. And, yeah, he said that the story that, that I'm reaching out there and, and, and giving to people really is giving them hope. And, you know, I've, I've made it a point now to, like I said, visit local hospitals and visit hospitals wherever I travel to, to give presentations and, and climb or, or for whatever. And I also always go in there, and, and it's, it's kind of cool because the kids, they love the gear. You know, they love the ice <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the crampons, you know, the, the oxygen mask, and, and the, the carabiners and the big down summit suit. But I think the parents are the ones that get the most out of the story. They see someone who was in their child's position or, or in their teen's spot at one time, and then all of a sudden there's a guy who's, you know, climbed the highest mountain on every continent with one fully functioning lung who's had cancer twice. Mm. So I think um, it's, it's starting to resonate with people touched by cancer, and they really are getting some hope and inspiration. Like I said uh, from that quote before, you know, we can't live for more than 30 seconds without a hope. Yeah. And my goal is, you know, one of two things, to inspire you to motivate yourself or to motivate you to inspire yourself. Get out there and, and have that inner drive and that inner motivation to do something with your life and reach out and help other people. It's it's just really it's a it's an amazing story your story Sean and it, it I can see how it would be really touching and inspiring people um, all around the world um, Peter let's 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 uh, let's talk about this for a minute for the average person um, you're just diagnosed with cancer uh, you're not sure what to do you're not sure where to go can you give us just some basic tips for the average person who's just been diagnosed with cancer and what are some of the things they need to think about as they face as, as they face this illness Sure. Um, I think information is probably the most important thing to, uh, to get. And um, the touch point for your information should be your physician, uh, and you should have a relationship with your doc uh, that's uh, a worthwhile and kind of two-way street one. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't feel that you're getting what you need from your doc, you need to find another doc, frankly. Yeah, yeah. What, what I would encourage folks to understand is, and when a friend calls and says, my mom has cancer, uh, please help me, what I need to know is the name of the cancer, that is the diagnosis, what it looks like under the microscope, yeah. the stage, that is where it's spread, mm-hmm. and from there we can start understanding what she may have in store for her. And docs need to be forthright, assuming patients want to know uh, as much as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah. So, so much of it is about getting that information. Uh, I know you also mentioned earlier, Peter, really understanding what are the goals uh, of your treatment. Do I have a cancer that can be cured? Um, Or uh, do I have a more advanced cancer where we're really looking at maybe trying to to keep it at bay a little bit or, um, you know, just even really trying to make me comfortable in terms of thinking about some of these issues? Right. So really, it's getting the information. It's having a good relationship with the healthcare team. It's understanding the goals of treatment. I mean, those are some of the key things that that folks should be thinking about. Right, and and I, and I want to point out that not everybody really wants to know everything. The fact yeah. of the matter is that when it comes to my own healthcare, I find denial works pretty well. And, <laughs> and it, it ain't a river in Egypt, it right? Ain't a river in North Africa, exactly. Um, the the so. So it really is okay to say to your doc, you know what, doc, I'm not so sure I can handle very bad news, so could you just, you know, tell me what I need to know uh, as I need to know it, um, but don't scare me, please. Right. And I, I, I think uh, forthright, honest conversations is what 
uh, was what the doctor-patient relationship is all about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, guys, we're going to turn quickly to a little segment that we do on the show where we take questions and comments from some of our local wellness community participants uh, from around the country. We have a submission today that comes from Dawn, who is a participant at our wellness community in Delmarva, which is in uh, Salisbury, Maryland, eastern shore of Maryland. Dawn asks, why are so few cancer survivors percentage-wise seeking support services? Is it that people are unaware that these services are, avail- are available, or is it just that the nature of people to hide or, or avoid potentially talking about uh, cancer? I mean, I would say uh, I would say both of those things. Uh, frankly, we're all working hard to get the word out about many of the support services that do exist out there. Tr- connecting with doctors like Peter and other doctors to make sure folks know that as much as they need good cancer care, they need good supportive care as well. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's critical. But I also think that for some people, they do want to avoid talking about it. We need to encourage them that, to talk about it, and that that this is that that uh, integrative care is really part of quality cancer care. Is that what you're? Is that what you would you would say, Peter? As well, why, why? You know, we're really trying to get the, the word out there to get folks to take advantage sure. of these services. You know, I have to share with you. I, I went to a prostate support group meeting uh, a few Tuesdays ago at the invitation of the guy Stan, who runs it uh, here in at Marin General Hospital. Yeah, I was totally blown away. There were there must have been sixty men there, and some with spouses. Yeah, and what I. Uh, had expected if I had just looked at the guys and not listened to them was a room full of crotchety old guys um, who would have been grousing about whatever was going on. These guys were so thoughtful and so smart. So um, I I really think it has to do with uh, the availability of a group, how well they publicize themselves, what their leadership is like. um, And then, of course, the other side, if a patient is receptive or not. Some folks just aren't group people. Right. And I think it's important that folks know that, that, that getting, you know, quote-unquote psychosocial support or getting social and emotional support isn't just about a support group. It can be one-on-one counseling. It can be going to a nutrition class. It can be going to a yoga class. It can be, you know, there are so many ways that patients can get support out there aside from just a support group, which might not be the right thing for you. Exactly. So, I, I, you know, I think it's important, and, I'm, you know, we are, we're all relying on, on folks like you, Sean, and folks like you, Peter, to just to get the word out. You know, if a big report came out last year from the Institute of Medicine called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient, which says that we can't just focus on the disease. We can't just focus on the tumor. We have to make sure we're providing care to the, to the whole patient. To the, to, you know, it's, it's about medicine, mind, body. It's about emotional support, social support, spiritual support. It really has to be that integrative care um, but uh, uh, we're uh, getting to the end of our show. Um, but, Sean, I just uh, wanted to ask you, any, any other, now that you've done the seven summits, what's uh, next on your horizon? Any, what's the next uh, peak on your horizon there? Uh, well, actually, the next peak is going to be flying to Hawaii on uh, Monday for the uh, Ford Ironman World Championship. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so that's why you're calling us from the gym today. I was, I was I just got out of the pool. Uh, you know, it's, it's a two and a half mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a marathon at the end. And December 13th on NBC at 2:30 Eastern time, they can see my smiling face on TV. <laughs> maybe, maybe not my smiling face, maybe my grueling face on TV. There you go, sweating, grueling, pained face. Exactly. <laughs> well, we will certainly look out for you, Sean. We will certainly be uh, in your camp and your cheering section from all over the country, uh, cheering you on that day. Um, Tell us again, what is the, uh, the website for Cancer Climber, Sean? 
Cancer Climber is just that. It's cancerclimber.org. So it's www.cancerclimber.org where folks can learn uh, about your nonprofit organization, uh, learn about the information that uh, that you provide and all the wonderful work you're doing. Um, I want to dedicate today's show to Lance Armstrong, who recently announced that he's returning to cycling uh, to bring attention to the war we still need to wage together uh, on cancer. The wellness community is a national partner with the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Um, together, we've developed a program called Cancer Transitions, which consists of a six-week survivorship program that addresses the physical, psychosocial, and practical needs of cancer survivors uh, after they complete their treatment. Uh, for more information on the, the program, you can visit our website at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Um, I want to thank you again, Sean. Thank you again, Peter, for uh, joining us for this wonderful conversation today. And until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.